Good morning, class. How are we this morning? Great. What? Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, the last time we were together, uh, it was noted that conflict in life is inevitable. And uh, you ask why that is, and it's very simple, because we're all different. And uh, marital co- conflict is inevitable because men and women are different. And uh, conflict with others is inevitable because each one of us has our own ideas and our own opinions, uh, past histories, which all influence the way that we think and respond to different situations. In addition to gender differences, there are religious, cultural, racial, age, educational, language, economic differences, which help formulate how we think and behave, making conflict in this lifetime inevitable. No question about it. Having had the opportunity to speak on a regular basis before the public, I have learned that most of us have a definite opinion as to the types of subjects that should or shouldn't be discussed, the types of words that should or should not be used. And I've had a few folks help me to become more sensitive when I speak as a result. Not to be quite as blunt and to try to eliminate as much of the locker room talk as I possibly can. So, you know, I've learned from you, some of you, um, to speak the truth, but to do it in a more delicate and sensitive manner. Now, for those of you who are new, you wouldn't even begin to believe how sensitive I've really become. (laughs) Those of you who've been here a long time know how true those statements are. We can all learn to communicate a little more sensitively, particularly when it comes to resolving outstanding conflicts with one another. I heard a story not too long ago that I think you'll appreciate. It's a story of a man who was uh, going to London. He had to go on a business trip, and he had his pet Siamese cat that he was very fond of that he left with his brother, and his brother was going to take care of it. This man loved his cat. His brother could care less about cats, but he said he would watch it anyway. So no sooner does Mr. Bauman get to London for his business meetings, he arrives in Heathrow, he picks up the telephone, he calls his brother, and he says, How's the cat? His brother says, your cat died, I got to go, and hung up. This guy is devastated. For the next couple of days, he tries to get a hold of his brother to find out what the details are, how his cat died. He leaves message after message, and finally, three days later, he gets a hold of his brother and says, how could you have done that to me? You know how much I love that cat? You know how special that cat is? You know how close we are? He goes, how could you just tell me the cat died and then hang up? I mean, and his brother's kind of like, well, what did you want me to say? What did you expect me to say? He said, well, you could have said that, you know, well, well, your cat was out playing on the roof. And then the next day when I called to see how it was, you could have said, well, he slipped and he fell off and he broke his leg, but he's going to be okay. He's at the vet's. Then the next day when I called, you could have said, well, you know what? He's at the vet's and they're keeping him overnight for observation, but it looks like he's going to be okay. And then when I came home, finally, and picked up the cat, you could have said, you know what? I'm sorry, but your cat passed away last night. He goes, you could learn to be more sensitive. He goes, by the way, how's mom doing? He stops, he thinks for a second, he says, well, last time I saw her, she was out playing on the roof. (laughs) You know, some of us, we want to hear it the way we want to hear it, but it doesn't really change what the truth is. So I'm learning to be a little more sensitive and compassionate, but you know what? The truth is the truth, and it's going to come out eventually. It's just a matter of how it is to be communicated, particularly in the area of resolving conflict. Now, the last time we got together, we went through a whole long list. Not an exhaustive list by any means, 
but a long list of areas in marriage where there is potential for conflict. And I left out just one, because I wanted to save this one for this moment in time. The area, the infamous matter of being on time. <gasps> yes! It's like, yes! Praise God, I was praying all week we'd get into this. How many of you, how many of us, have ever found ourselves in the midst of a marital conflict over the matter of being on time? Just a show of hands would be wonderful. Oh, two hands. I, 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 going like this. The typical couple. Tell me if this, you cannot relate to this. I think you can. The typical couple, one operates on what I call Vince Lombardi time. Vince Lombardi was a legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers. He demanded punctuality of his players and his coaches and his staff. And each minute that you were late for a meeting with Vince Lombardi, you had to want, run one 40-yard dash. Now, some of you are thinking, that's not bad. I can be 10 minutes late, run 10. No, here's how he did it, though. You ran one 40-yard sprint times the number of people that you kept waiting in the meeting. Ooh, I like that. So if there's 50 people waiting in a meeting and you're one minute late, that costs you 50 40-yard dashes. Now, I want to tell you something. There weren't very many people late for Coach Lombardi's meetings. Now, he did have a sense of humor, and I like a couple of stories I've heard. One was really funny, and that was Vince Lombardi not only demanded punctuality, but he had a curfew. And if you violated the curfew, you were fined. Well, Paul Horning was one of those guys that liked to run around in the evenings after curfew. The golden boy of the Green Bay Packers in the early 60s. And so Lombardi would find out Horning was gone again after curfew. So he called him in his office and says, Horning, that's $250. The next time you're out running around after curfew, it's going to be $500. Sure enough, a week goes by, they check on Horning, he's gone again, he's in town, he's doing something. And Lombardi calls him, that's $500. So the next time it's $750. And Vince is getting frustrated because he's not, this guy's not, you know, he's just not conforming to his rules. Week goes by, Horning's gone again. It's cost him $750. Finally, Lombardi's so frustrated, he doesn't know what to do anymore. He says, listen, Horning, the next time that you leave after curfew, it's going to cost you $1,000. And if you can think of anything worth, worth $1,000, come and wake me up. I'm going to go with you. <laughs> Sometimes you just get to that point. You know, it's like, hey, what am I going to do next? But the point was, Lombardi demanded punctuality. He demanded punctuality. You know, I'm like that. I feel like, you know, if there's 350 people here every week, my, my attitude is this. I don't want to be responsible for one moment that you feel like you've wasted one minute of time by being here. Because you take 350 people times one minute, and that's almost three hours of wasted time. My partner and I went to a business meeting last week. We sat in this meeting for one hour, and about five minutes of information was given to us. After about 45 minutes of, <laughs> and doing this, I looked at him and said, have I ever done that on a Sunday? He goes, no, not really. I said, man, you know what, I'm gonna just shoot me right now, because I, mean, I, I got to get out of here. I mean, it was torture. And you think that, oh my gosh, could you imagine just, I mean, just being tortured for 45 minutes? I guess some of you can. <laughs> but anyway, oh, sorry about that. But, um, but the point is, it's like, you know, you feel responsible 
for the people that are there. I mean, there's an accountability there. And, and generally in marriage, one operates on Vince Lombardi time, and the other, well, well, to them, time is merely a suggestion. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's a suggestion. It's, it's, a, it's, a loose, it's a loose format. It's, it's a guideline, basically, for everybody else. You know what I'm saying? And it, it, it's kind of like the kindred clock. Like, people say, well, what time does your class start? So whenever people feel like showing up. It's kind of like the way it is. I got an idea. So we've tried everything. We're going to move the donuts down here to the front so people come in late. They feel bad, and they couldn't get their coffee and donuts, and maybe they come earlier. And we talk about starting at 845, and it's like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get people here at 845? Well, I think what we're going to do from now on you're a minute late, you're going to run a sprint. <laughs> we're going to take you right out to Tustin Avenue, we're going to line you up, and we're going to run you till you drop. <laughs> Times the number of people that you kept waiting. It's an idea, I don't know, what do you think? The six people on time are thinking, yeah, that's a great idea. The rest of you are like, you know what, I think I'll show up a little earlier next time. He may be serious. The Kendrick clock. Now, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but there was a time in our marriage where... This was like a conflict. Specifically when our children were younger, one of the greatest conflicts of our marital existence was trying to get to church on time. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this. I don't know if some of you go through this. But Sunday mornings, getting ready to go to church was the biggest test of the week. Our kids were smaller. At that time, our church services started at 8 o'clock. We had 3, 8, 9.30, and 11. I taught the one at 9.30, so we wanted to try to get there at 8 o'clock so we can get home and watch some good football. <laughs> had our priorities straight then, still do today. Um, so we tried to get there at 8 o'clock. Now, you know, with three small children trying to get to a church service at 8 o'clock, you had a formidable task ahead of you. We'd try to get up as early as we could. We'd go to bed as early as we could. We'd get up early. We are ready to roll. And for some reason, I don't care how early we got up, we were always running late. And I don't know how many days I have did this, but man, I was downstairs and I was yelling upstairs, Let's go! We got to go! It's time to go! Let's roll it! I'm getting out in the car right now. Here I'm going, heading out to the garage. Yep, in the garage, there I am. And I'm looking around and there's nobody there with me. I'm beeping the horn. I'm in the garage. Beep, beep. Hey, we're ready to go. Let's roll it. Beeping the horn. Here they go. And all of a sudden, here comes Linda and the three kids jumping in the car. Shoom, like a covey quail, man. They just jump right in that van. Here we go. We're heading out the door. And I'm just kind of looking. Where have you been? We're heading down the hill. Where have you been? What took so long? I don't understand. We got up early. What's the deal? And I'm heading down the hill. I'm going about 900 miles an hour. Linda looks back at the kids. She says, Buckle up, kids! We're heading to church! And we're flying down the hill. And I'm kind of giving her that, you know, like, where you been? What have you been doing? And she gives me that look. You know that look, ladies? That, like, I can freeze water at the equator look? And she just kind of gives the look. And here we are. We're heading down to church. And we're going about 900 miles an hour. We're breaking every speed limit law that there is in the state of California to get to church on time. The kids are fighting over some piece of toast that somebody bootlegged and smuggled into the car. 
Somebody snagged something, somebody wasn't smart enough to think about it, and somebody's back there trying to eat toast without anybody seeing, and you can hear him chomping. It's like, give me a piece of that, I want a piece of that, and they're all fighting, I want a piece of that, I want to give me a piece of that. Be quiet, we're going to church to learn about Jesus! And they're looking at you, and you get there, and you pull in the parking lot, and you're like, you don't want to slam on a brake? Ease your way in. And then the first person you see, good morning, how are you this morning? God bless you. God bless you too. Good morning. Isn't it a great day? <laughs> Praise God, we're here. And we walk into church and then you hear some great sermon on patience. <laughs> Sitting there going, oh, that's good stuff. Then you get back in the car. And then it's time to make a peace offering. Where does everyone want to go to lunch? <laughs> Anybody? They throw out some ideas. And then you kind of try to make peace. That's Sunday morning. Now, that murmuring and grumbling and stuff really isn't conducive to a spirit and attitude of worship. But it's kind of the way that it is. And so, you know, Linda will, and she's, as the years have gone by, she has gotten to the point where she can tactfully begin to discuss these things with me. And, I said, and she goes, uh, you know, you realize what i got to do in the morning to get four children ready to go to church? Now I'm going, wait a minute now. We got three children. Ah, I see. I get it. You know, and I try to explain, well, you know, I, I got my own socks out today. You know, I'm doing good. And she kind of gives you that look like, you know, and, she, and then she begins to explain with, for what has to be like the 400 millionth time, the things that I can do to help everyone to be more on time. Because while I'm sitting downstairs just looking over my notes, there's like all this activity going on upstairs. So fortunately, I learned through the years that there's actually some things that I can do to uh, eliminate some of the conflict that we have. So if some of you still have younger children at home, let me just pass along some advice to you. Help. <laughs> right? Make the bed. Get the kids up. Change them if they need to be changed. If you, know, if you don't know what they should wear, then ask your wife the night before to lay out their clothes somewhere where you can't even mess that up. And, you know, and then help put it on and get them ready and feed the kids. And man, you know what's amazing? As we develop this kind of relationship where we could discuss these things, the conflict tended to be resolved. And then one day, we'll come, one day this will happen. Your children will be old enough that they can pick out their own clothes and then you can argue with them as to whether or not they're going to leave the house wearing what they chose to wear. But, um, you know, that's the way that it is. And, 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 and we need to get to that point. You know, over the years, I've learned to listen to my wife because she has learned the art of what I would call loving confrontation. We're still learning that together. We're still working on those things together. But you know what? The, the, the marriage that, really, the, the marriage that has a relationship where you can be honest with each other, you can be open with each other, you can communicate with each other, and you don't get all defensive and upset about what is being shared back and forth, is a marriage where you're going to be able to resolve much of your conflict. And so as, as we think about it, the key to this thing is that we need to learn the secret of what I would call the secret of loving confrontation. Since conflict is inevitable... The secret is we have to learn how to confront one another in a loving way that will cause the other person to hear what is being said. 
not in a defensive manner, not in an ugly manner, not in a negative manner, but in a loving way confront one another. And if you want to practice loving conf confrontation, you know what, you, you have to believe that, you know what, I've got to believe that my wife is on my side. She has to believe that I am on her team. We've got to believe that we're in this thing together and we're not out to get one another. That we're on the same team. It's important for us to, to understand that. You know, because the messages that God uses Linda to speak to me are the most important messages that I ever learned in my life. God wants to use your spouse to communicate some important truths about your life. Things that you don't see and things that you cannot see, but God uses your husband or your wife to communicate what you need to see. Those are critical lessons. But see, some of us would rather be more comfortable than to be more Christ-like. We don't want to hear anything that's negative. We don't want to hear anything about us that needs to be changed or to be conformed into the image of Christ. And you know, and God's purpose and goal for all of us is for all of us to grow in the image of Christ, to be conformed to His image. We need to recognize that and understand that. You know, some of us don't want to hear that. I like what uh, uh, Billy Graham's wife said at one point where she, when she was asked, well, do you and Billy get along and, and do you agree upon everything? And she went, oh, heavens no. No, in fact, if we agreed on everything, then there would be no need for one of us. And that's a very valid point. If you agreed on everything, then there's no need for one of you. But see, God takes two people that are opposite in many ways and puts us together so that we would be able to be used by God to help one another become more conformed to the image of Christ. And so the secret is loving confrontation. I need to get to the point, and I would hope that you do, where we begin to focus our attention and learn, as we talked last time, learn how to listen to one another, not in a defensive manner. And, you know, and sometimes, have you ever been in a situation where you try to help your spouse see something, and he or she twists every word that you say? To, to, to say things that you never intended to say. They become very defensive and they, and they become angry and they throw it back in your face and you go back and forth over these things. And, and what happens is when we, get, when we get defensive, then we get to the point where we want to avoid confrontation at all costs because we have learned that it's not a positive thing. If I try to confront my wife or she tries to confront me and I become defensive at what she says and I become angry at what she's saying and I throw it back at her, then what she's learning is, you know what, I, I can't confront him, I can't talk to him about anything because he's going to throw it back in my face. And so all of a sudden, instead of open communication and intimacy, there's, a, there's an alienation and a separation and it happens not only in marriage but it happens in friendship and all other kind of relationships when you're afraid to confront someone to have a discussion because they become defensive. And then you have no communication going on. For years this will happen, and a lot of trouble develops because of it. We've got to learn to put our defenses down and believe that the person who's confronting us, whether you believe that they like you or not, that they have given the benefit of the doubt, that they have your best interest in mind. And when that happens, it changes the whole dynamics of your relationship. Conflict is a healthy thing when it arises from authenticity. If I can be who I am and, and, and share what I think with my wife, and if she can be who she is and shares what she thinks with me, and both of us can be open and truthful and authentic with one another, then the conflicts that we end up resolving are good things and positive things because they lead to intimacy and oneness as we move together in life. 
So, but we need to learn the art of what I would call the secret of loving confrontations. You know, not naggy kind of things. And see, and usually here's what tends to happen from my observation. You try to confront someone with an area of their life that you need to discuss. They don't listen to you, so you begin to harp on it. You begin to nag on it. You begin to bring it up on a regular basis. And what I would suggest, just as a practical thing, think about this. If, if, if there's an area of your relationship that's really a concern, instead of nagging, because see what nagging is, nagging is a bad habit, or nagging is a result of the other person not listening to you. They don't hear anything that you say, so you have to continue to say the same things over and over again, and then you say them louder and louder, and you think that somehow that's going to get through. What I would suggest that you do is just do this. If there's something that your spouse, you want your spouse to do, and you talk about it, and it doesn't get done, then just write it down on a little index card, a little three-by-five card, some honeydew things, you know what I mean? A honeydew list. And just use one of those magnetic things that they have. Everybody's got them on their refrigerators. In fact, I think they come with refrigerators. And just put that thing right up on the refrigerator. See, if my wife wants me to do things, and she keeps on asking me to do it, and I don't do it, and she keeps asking, she gets more frustrated. And I get tired of hearing it. And then I can hear her say it before she says it, so I'm not listening before she even starts to speak. Anyway. But if you write it down, and it's on that refrigerator, then every time you walk by the refrigerator, that note's going, Would you please do this stuff? And it's the note that's nagging at you. And it's not the person. I mean, it's just a simple little thing, but you know what's great is, and then as you do it, you just kind of cross it off. And then she could walk by or he could walk by and say, hey, that's crossed off. And you can move forward in resolving some of these things and you don't have to be naggy about it. So what I want to do is I want to share with you five, what I would call five keys to gentle confrontation. Confrontation is critical. It's inevitable. It's something that is necessary. Not naggy, not annoying, but gentle, loving confrontation. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah. There's some advice here, not, not just to married couples, but for all of us who from time to time will find ourselves in a position where we must confront one another. And I think what we'll begin to find is if there is successful resolution to conflict because of confrontation, that we will have more of a tendency to confront one another in a gentle, loving way, and we'll see some significant progress taking place in our relationship with one another. In the book of Nehemiah, which is, which is um, it seems like a strange book that's going to give you advice on, on marriage, but in the book of Nehemiah, look at chapter 1, and there's five gentle keys that we will find to loving confrontation from Nehemiah's confrontation with the king that he happened to be working for at the time. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll start with verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. 
Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now night and day on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house, we have all sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you've commanded us through your servant Moses. Remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter among the peoples. I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and you keep my commandments and you do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people whom thou dost redeem by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and to make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. There's some insight in these first couple of chapters. The first one I want to share with you as I went through this and looked at it is that, you know, the book of Nehemiah seems like a real unlikely place for some advice to marital couples on how to resolve conflict. But in these first and second chapters, there are some real key insight and principles uh, for approaching confrontation wisely. And the first one that I noticed as I went through this was that, you know what, Nehemiah, he took the time before he confronted his boss, he took the time to pray. He took the time to pray. See, there was a problem. The problem was that after the captivity of Jerusalem and and, uh, Israel was taken into captivity, the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed and they were knocked down. And so Nehemiah was now working for this king and he asked about those who had survived the captivity and there was a remnant of of, uh, Israel that was still left in the city of Jerusalem, but the walls were knocked down. And so there was a concern that they would be, you know, subject to further conquest by invading nations. And so he was brokenhearted by this report that he heard. But the problem was he was working for the king. And there was a confrontation that he felt would be coming shortly because he wanted to do something about this problem. He wanted to go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, but he knew that he would have to confront his boss to get some time off. So that's an interesting way to look at it, too. He had a boss that he had to confront, and he wanted to to somehow or another pave the way to soften the heart of his boss to get some time off. You know, and as I was thinking about this and this whole area of prayer, you know, he said, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He prayed about it. Before he confronted the king, he prayed. You know what, I was thinking as I I was looking at this and reading this, that you know what, most problems in marriage could be resolved if a husband and wife would just take some time to take that problem to the Lord. To pray. To let God simmer them down. To let God get a hold of them before we actually begin to speak to one another to just stop and pray. So many times in our confrontations to one another, we just get fed up into the point where, i got to say something about this. This has to be resolved. I'm not putting up with it anymore. Very rarely do we take the time before that to pray about it. 
Very rarely do we take the time to go to God and say, Lord, you know what, there's a problem in our relationship today and, and, uh, and it needs to be resolved. And I know that you don't want to ignore it because it's not going to go away. And, and conflict never goes away. And let me tell you folks something, you cannot ignore conflict. It doesn't, grow, it doesn't go away. It only grows and festers and becomes worse. It has to be confronted. But there is a proper way to do it. And so Nehemiah, the problem wasn't going away. The walls around Jerusalem weren't going to spring up automatically. There was a problem that needed to be resolved. But he also knew that, you know what? I, I need God's help in resolving this issue. If you have a conflict with your mate, or if you're having a conflict with a child or a girlfriend, boyfriend, coach, teacher, boss, coworker, a partner, a customer, a client, a friend, a relative, a neighbor, a church member, then what I would suggest that you do is take some time and pray. God, there's a problem here, and I need to pray about it. You know, and I was thinking about that because, you know, in, in my life I've seen there's some real benefits to it. There's some real benefits to prayer. The first one that I noticed in my life is this, that prayer slows me down. When I take time to pray about something, it slows me down from taking actions that usually, if I do hastily, I learn to regret later on. Haste makes waste, is the old saying, but you know what? Haste makes a whole bunch more than waste. It makes for a lot of problems. When you hurry up and say something or do something or respond or react and you haven't taken the time to pray about it, I'll guarantee you that nine times out of ten, you're going to be sorry you said what you said or did what you did. Praying about it makes us slow down and it eliminates embarrassing results. Remember James 1.17 says that we're to be quick to listen, that we're going to be slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to listen. When I'm praying, I'm not only speaking to God and requesting of God, but I'm also listening for the response or what I'm supposed to be doing. Prayer forces me to wait on God. It forces me to, slow, it forces me to get slowed down by God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, what? Acknowledge Him, and He'll make your path straight. Stop. Slow down. Pray and listen to God. See, that's what Nehemiah did. He prayed about it. It also helps me see a little more clearly what the real problem is. See, we've got this late night, early morning, low cloud thing that we got going in Southern California, right? Well, see, prayer to me is like when the sun finally breaks through. You know, we're, we, we all have a, a very jaded perception of what's going on. We all think a little more highly of ourselves than we should, and we don't think that we're really ever the cause of the problem in our marriage or in our relationship with other people. It's not really us. It's them that are driving me crazy. You know, and the interesting thing is when we pray about it, you know, it's like, you know, the, the clouds kind of burn off. If you've got your Bibles, look at Philippians chapter 4. Many of us know this particular passage, but you can't ignore it when it comes to the benefits of praying. But in Philippians chapter 4, look at verses 6 and 7. See, prayer calms me down. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. It's a command. Don't be worrying about your relationship with your husband or wife. Don't worry about your relationship with your children. Don't worry about your relationship with your boss. Don't worry about your relationship with a friend or family member. Don't worry about your relationship with your customer or client or whatever. Don't be worrying about all your relationships and all the problems that you have. Don't worry about any of it. Be anxious for nothing. But instead of worrying all about it, but in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what? And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So many times we sit and we worry about our relationship and our marriage. Oh, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what she's going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know blah, blah, blah. Hey, you know what? Take that time that you're going around talking to everybody and you're worried about it and you're getting all upset about it. Take that time and use it constructively and pray about it. And what God says is, this is going to blow your mind. It's going to be beyond your comprehension. You're not going to be able to figure it out. You're not going to be able to understand what's going on. But he says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. I don't understand how I can have peace in the middle of this turmoil that I'm in the midst of right now in our relationship with one another. But God has given me a peace through the middle of all. He says, and it'll guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's a military term. He means that God's going to set up a camp around your life and your heart. And he's going to give you a peace in the midst of all of it. Even when your wife or husband's driving you crazy and you don't understand this relationship. Or when your kid's driving you nuts. Or a boss is driving you nuts. Or a friend's driving you nuts. And you've got all this conflict and other relationships. He's saying, hey, you know what? In the midst of all that turmoil, I'm going to give you peace. And you're not going to be able to understand it. Because it is a miracle from God. Some of us are sitting here right now and we're worried sick over a relationship with another person. All the things that could go wrong. All the things that have gone wrong. All the things that are going wrong. And we haven't taken one minute, we haven't taken one minute to pray about it. God says, if you do that, I'll give you peace. Trust me. Don't lean on your own understanding of this thing. All your ways you acknowledge me and I'll set your path straight. I'll give you peace. I'm going to challenge you today. If there's a problem in a relationship, take time to take it to God. I said Nehemiah did. And the last thing too, that's the benefit of prayer that I've seen, which is phenomenal, is that, you know what? Nehemiah in that first chapter, what prayer does, it helps me to see my role in the conflict. See, Nehemiah started to pray about it, and he said, you know, I've got this problem, this wall's knocked down, but you know what? It was like God said, yeah, and guess why it got knocked down? Because of what you people did. You violated my commandments. You violated my statutes, my ordinances. You did what I told you not to do, and I told you if you did it, this was going to happen, and that's what happened, isn't it? And Nehemiah said, you know what, Lord? You're right. Not only have those people sinned, but I have sinned too. See, and that's important. Because I know right now, because I'm like a lot of you, that when somebody tells me, you know, you need to pray about it, my prayers would be this. God, would you please change the way my wife is? Isn't that the way it is? It's always, God, can you change the other person? Because I know me, and I certainly don't need any improvement. I'm just doing pretty fine, thank you very much. And if you ask me, I'll just tell you, I'm doing real good. And the problem is, what I have learned is this. First, how I am contributing to the problem that we're having in our relationship. Show me that. See, because, you know what, I can't change my wife. Nagging her isn't going to change her. And guys can nag just as bad as women. Beating her up isn't going to change her as far as beating her verbally about things she's supposed to do or shouldn't do or whatever, you know what, making her, and, and you know what, and making you people run 40-yard sprints isn't going to change either. The reality of it is we can't change other people. But I'll tell you this, 
If I ask God to show me where I need to change, man, he won't hesitate. He say, sit down, Chuck, and grab a pen. Now, in fact, get on the computer, because you're going to have to write a lot faster than you can write with your hand. You're going to have to just crank this out. And here's what you need to start doing, brother. Whoa. And all of a sudden, it changes everything, doesn't it? Because I guarantee you this, that most of the time, the problems you're having in your relationship, whether you know it or not, you're causing most of it. And the other person is reacting to what you're doing. When I love my wife like I'm supposed to, when I'm sensitive and compassionate like I should be, when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be, it's amazing how her attitude, her whole attitude changes. It's a phenomenal thing. But when God says, Chuck, you know what? You got some changing to do. You got some growing to do. You got to do some things in your own life. And don't worry about Linda. And don't worry about your kids. Don't worry about anybody else around you. You do what you're supposed to do. And guess what? I'll take care of them. See, that's what prayer does. Nehemiah said, I'm guilty. I'm just as guilty as everybody else. I know that I sinned. And I'm sorry that I did it. And God, you know what? Use this situation to teach me something. And we'll move on from there. And we need to understand that. The first step to gentle confrontation is this. Pray about it. Now watch this. In the second chapter of Nehemiah, look what happened. It says, Now it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and I gave it to the king, and I had never been sad in his presence. Now the interesting thing as I read through this was that Nehemiah, check this out, it says that, in the, in, the second cha- in the first verse of the first chapter, it was in the month of Chislev. And in the second chapter of the first verse, it says it was in the month of Nisan. And basically, what we have is a four-month period of time. Four months! Four months he prayed about it. Some of us are like, I, I prayed about it. Five minutes. Now I'm confronting. I did what the guy said to do. I prayed about it first. Now I'm going after it. And you know what? And what God did, He said, Nehemiah prayed for four months. Think about that. I don't know what kind of problem you're having in your relationship with your spouse or anybody else, but shoot, man, I'll tell you this. This man prayed for four months before he felt that God was leading him to have a confrontation to try to resolve what he wanted to resolve. And it's critical to understand, and you'll see why in a second. But for four months he prayed about it. Says, so the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Says, then I was very much afraid. Says, I was very much afraid. So what he does is, now Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. His job was to taste the food before the king would eat it for the purpose of making sure, not that it didn't taste right, but that no one was trying to kill him. So somebody would try to poison the food or the, or the wine or whatever. His job was to taste the wine, to eat some of the food. How about that for a job, huh? Man, talk about workman's comp premium. Gee whiz. But, uh, you know, and that's what he was supposed to do. And he was also supposed to be in a good mood every day. Because if you're the king, you don't want some, you don't want, I'll tell you what right now, a lot of us would never be in a position to get this job. Because the last thing the king wants is a bunch of grumpy looking people sitting next to him saying, I'm having a bad day. See, he didn't do that. Because Nehemiah said, I was afraid. When the king finally realized Nehemiah wasn't having a very good day, he said, I was afraid. 
Why? Because he could be executed for being sad in front of the king. So this whole confrontation thing takes on a whole new meaning here. And so this is what he said. It says in verse 3, And I said to the king, what? Let the king live forever. Confrontation. Look what he did. He expressed loyalty. He expressed support. He expressed encouragement. He said, I said to the king, may the king live forever. It was kind of like he was saying, you know what? Uh, Don't get angry, king. Don't get defensive. It's nothing personal. Don't forget I'm on your side. I've been a team player since the beginning and I'm all for you. And it's like in a marriage saying, honey, I need to talk to you about something, but I just want to remind you that we're on the same side. We're on the same team. We're going in the same direction. And I love you more today than I did the day that we met and the day we got married. And I just want to let you know that there is something that we need to discuss. So before you get defensive and before you get angry and before you shut me out, I want you to remember all the loyal years of service that I've given to you. And I'm still here 20 years later. And I'm just going to let you know I'm still going to be here after this. But all I'm trying to do is suck up to you right now so that you just, you know, just so that you listen to me for a second. And that's what he did. And that's what Nehemiah did. Hey, king, don't forget what a great servant I've been for all the years that I've been here. You know I've done a good job. And man, you know what? And he's thinking, I know you could kill me if you want to. And I know that, you know, if I'm, if I'm raining on your parade that you're not going to like it. And if I'm going to confront you, you could be angry. You could kill me. You could do whatever you want to do. But it's like, don't forget that we really have a great relationship together. And what I want to share with you is not only for my best interest, but it's going to be for your best interest as well. Express loyalty, encouragement, and support. He reminded the king of his position. You know what? I was thinking, you know what would be great? Now, ladies, I, I don't know if you're up to this, but you might want to try this. Okay, there's something going on in your relationship with your husband. You need to confront him. You need to discuss it. You've been praying about it, and it could have been for a number of years. I don't know how long it's been that you've been praying, but you've been praying, and finally you feel like God's leading you to confront this. What I would suggest that you do, you go up to him and you say, May the king live forever. Huh? What do you think? Try that. Now, I'll tell you what. If my wife does that to me, I am forced in the position of saying, what is it, my dear? I, I, it just, it's natural. It's going to happen. You know? All right, all right, all right, all right. And some of the ladies are going, oh, okay, well, what about us? Okay, guy, listen. Sir, if there's something you want to discuss with your wife, try it in reverse. May the Queen, Your Highness, live forever. See, it doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? It just, no, it just doesn't work. I'm sorry, and it's not biblical anyway, because that's not what he said. He said, may the King live forever. Well, anyway, just a thought. You might want to try it. Anyway, express loyalty, encouragement, and support. You know, let your spouse know, hey, we're in this thing together. We've been here through thick and thin and we're still going to be here together and I just need to talk to you about something. Okay? Number three, be truthful about what you're going to discuss. I like this. It says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. He said, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He was just truthful with him. He said, this is what's bothering me. And why shouldn't it bother me? I mean, my, you know, this is the place of my ancestors and the, and the place is destroyed and the gates are in ruin and they lie there in fire and, and yeah, and, it, and it's bumming me out. 
We need to be truthful with one another. He stated the truth. He told it. Maybe some of us, like the guy you know in the earlier story, we need to become more sensitive as to how we state it. But the Bible says we should speak the truth in love and just just tell the truth. And, and, and you know, and just let, let people know, let her know, let them know what exactly it is that's on your heart. We need to understand that. And we need to recognize that, you know what, that's, that's confrontation's not optional if we're going to grow. And sugarcoating it and, and making it something that it isn't isn't going to help anybody. Nehemiah just told the truth. But you know what I like about it? He didn't go any long-winded detail. He just said, this is what's bothering me. Why? Because the longer that you speak, the more likely it is that you're going to mess up what you're trying to accomplish. All he said was, why shouldn't I be sad? The gates are knocked down. There's fire in the city. The walls are destroyed. I'm bummed out. Interesting, isn't it? But he told the truth. And some of us need to do that. Don't worry about sugarcoating stuff and don't worry about trying to make it more palatable. Just tell the truth. The fourth thing is this. He also had an attitude of submissiveness. An attitude of submission. He says, And I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried. He says, So that I can rebuild it. An attitude of submission. You know what? If it's okay with you, this is what I'd like to do. The Bible teaches mutual submission. The Bible teaches mutual submission in marriage. A husband and a wife who are to submit to one another. To meet one another's needs, the wife is to respect her husband. The husband is to grant her honor. That we're to be submissive to one another. And it's interesting, as we take this approach, too often resolution of conflict is made impossible because someone is more concerned about getting his or her own way too worried about appearing right than in being right. An attitude of submission. Honey, if it's okay, this is what I'd like to do. A spirit of cooperation. Not in demanding, not in nagging, not in saying this is the way it's going to be, it's my way or the highway. But this is what I'd like to do. In Philippians 2, look at 1 through 5. Philippians 2, we read this. If therefore there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each one of you regard the other as more important than himself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I mean, think about that for a second. If my wife knows that I've got her best interest in mind, and I know she's got my best interest in mind, and we're submissive to one another, we can have a conversation and communicate and say, you know what, if it's okay with you, this is what I'd like to do. But if not, that's okay with me too. He wasn't, Nehemiah wasn't playing a game saying, oh, if it's okay, king, this is what I'm going to do. He was ready to accept if it wasn't okay, he wouldn't do it. And you know what he'd do? He'd go back and start praying about it again. He'd go back to scratch and say, okay, Lord, obviously it wasn't the right time and it wasn't what, what I expected, so would you please continue to soften his heart? Would you please continue to lead me and guide me and direct me as to when it's the right time to confront him or her again? We're going to go all through this again because it's important that we resolve it. But it wasn't resolved this time, that's okay. We'll go back and we'll start all over again. An attitude of submission. An attitude of humility. And the last thing is this, and we'll close on this, but it's, hey, be specific in your request. There's a problem in your relationship. 
Be specific. You've prayed about it. You feel like God's leading you to confront and to talk to your mate about it. It's the right time to do it. You're doing it with an attitude of submission and humility. And now, you know, it's like, okay, this is what the king said. Well, what do you want? Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? He says, and, if it, and it pleased the king to send me. So you know what I did? I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. He says, and may I give a letter to Asaph, who is the king, keeper of the king's force, so it will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and the city wall and for the residence which I'll occupy. He says, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. You see, while he was praying for four months, he was also checking out and doing his homework. He was getting into the facts. He was finding out, well, who's in charge of the lumber? And who's in charge of the passage from here to there? And what should I do? So that if God moves this guy's heart and he asks me what I want, I'd be able to tell him specifically what it is. Some of us have conflict in our life, and we're not specific as to the ways to resolve it. And it can't be resolved if you're not specific. And what will usually happen is if you don't resolve it on an ongoing basis, man, everything blows up. You have one of those, and I told, and another thing, conversations. And while I'm at it, conversation. You know what? It's like, be specific. Deal with every conflict as they come up, one conflict at a time. So you don't get bombarded with 20 things that bugs you about your spouse that haven't been resolved in 10 years, and you take a tour of the universe and of how you met and when you met and what you did wrong then and all those things. It's like, hey... Today, if you have conflict, resolve that issue today. And once it's resolved, don't ever bring it up again. It's a done deal. Stop beating a dead horse. Resolve it today. See, what he did was, the king asked him, what do you want? He was very specific. What do I want? I'll tell you what I'd like. If you can't squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom of the tube, then buy your own toothpaste. That would work very well. Great. Then we'll get two tubes of toothpaste if that's what's going to take to resolve conflict because we want to make sure that we're on the same team together. What's bothering you? If it's, hey, we're running late every week, well then what can I do to help you to become ready so that we don't have this conflict every week? What do we got to do? Be specific. All right, you take care of kids two through six. I don't care. Whatever it is. All right, well, here, well, help me. Pick out the clothes because you know I can't even dress myself. So get them out, lay them out. You know, it's be specific about it. That's all you have to do to resolve it. Just tell them. Tell her. Tell them. Whoever it is. Be specific. And man, it's a great thing. You know, we can resolve all of these things. The music's too loud. How loud is acceptable? Turn it down to there. Great. We're all getting along now. We've got one big happy family. You know, and that's really what it takes. It takes a desire and an effort to be able to meet one another's needs. To be willing to sacrifice your own interests on the interests and the behalf of another person. And you know what's amazing too is look at the conclusion of all this. Nehemiah said this, you know what? And God granted my prayer because the gracious hand of my God was on me. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hands of God. It's like a channel or a funnel of water and he can direct it any way that he wants. God can move the hearts of kings and presidents and rulers. God isn't limited by your spouse or a friend or a boss or a neighbor or a relative. God's not limited. He can take a heart and He can change the hardest heart because our great physician is the greatest heart specialist that ever walked the face of the earth. He can take the hardest heart 
and he can soften it, make it pliable, and to mold it any way that he wishes to mold it. You know, we need to understand that. We need to recognize that. I love this story, and it all comes back to this, loving confrontation. There was a pastor who had a couple that came in to be counseled, and uh, what happened was this guy had gotten himself in trouble. He got, he, he got himself, he, he committed adultery. He was having an affair. His wife found out about it. She thought she'd get even, and she'd go out and do the same thing. So this couple comes into this pastor for counseling. They come in, and man, I mean, they're just, the, the, you know, you can see the knives just shooting across the room. She sat in one side of the room. He sat in the other side of the room. I mean, the tension was as thick as you can be. And, and the pastor looked at him and said, you know what, I'll tell you what, before we get into all these things, I got, I got a homework assignment for you. And they said, what? What is it? He said, what I want you to do is I want you to go home and for a week I want you to, to love each other. He said to the man, I want you to love your wife. And he said, you don't understand, we're not even living together like, man and, like husband and wife anymore. I mean, I can't stand to look at her, she can't stand to look at me. I'm not, we're not living together like husband and wife. He said, in fact, I, he goes, I, I've got my own bedroom. Right, right down the hall. And the pastor thought for a second and says, okay, so you don't want to love your wife because you're living together like a wife. Okay, great. And, and, oh, you got your own bedroom. Okay, well, you know what? Do, do you respect what the Bible has to say? And the guy goes, well, yeah, I do. He goes, okay, well, then let me challenge you to do this. Then love your neighbor. You're right down the hallway. There's only a wall between you. Then treat her as a neighbor and love your neighbor. He goes, oh, no, I don't want to love a neighbor, man, because, you know, we can't stand each other. I mean, we're like enemies. He goes, oh, okay, wait a minute. Flips through a couple other paths. Oh, here's one for you. It says, love your enemies. And the guy's getting a little bit frustrated with all this. He didn't want to love his wife. He didn't want to love his neighbor. Now he doesn't want to love an enemy. But he respects what God has to say in the Bible. So he said, okay, great. And he comes back. And a week later, they come back. And they're sitting almost next to each other. And he goes, well, how'd your week go? He said, you know, it was unbelievable. She goes, you know what? He's treated me better in this last week than he has in the 10 years that we've been married. And the pastor looked at this other guy and said, is that true? And he kind of looked at him and he smiled and he goes, well, pastor, you know what? I guess you can love your enemies. And they smiled, but there was a point that was made. And the point is very simple and don't miss it. If we're going to confront one another, we need to first love each other and then we can confront each other. Pray about it. Express loyalty and encouragement. Understand that God's hand is going to be in it. Be truthful when you discuss things. And as you move on, the most important thing is, and be specific to resolve it. And you know what? And when God melts that conflict and turns it into oneness, then you and I, as Nehemiah said, and you know what? And the gracious hand of our God was on us, and he granted us our request. Because the goal of confrontation isn't winning or losing. The goal of confrontation is to allow each person to leave the scene of a confrontation with a sense of peace, a sense of security, and a sense of oneness and intimacy. That's the goal of godly, biblical confrontation. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for your word. Uh, we just would take the time to pray, God, that you would... Uh, Show us when it's appropriate time to confront one another, to do it in a spirit of love and to speak the truth and to express loyalty and encouragement and support knowing that we're on the same team, we're on the same side, and we want the same things in life. And to be specific about it, not just to nag and to drone on and on and on about the problems, but to work toward a resolution 
to work toward making things right so that we can move on and enjoy the peace and the oneness and the intimacy that you've designed for marriage and all other relationships. And as you grant us these wishes and these, these requests, we'll just give you all the praise and glory. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, next week.